It's Monday, November 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, where am I? Oh, sorry. I was just waking up from my turkey-induced coma. <laughs> it was like great. Like many of us. It was great. How was yours? Uh, the same. Yeah. The same. And, yeah, good. Uh, yeah, gonna gonna have to get back on the uh, the whole exercising thing. No, <laughs> no, there was no, not no, a lot no, of that no. happening. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you gotta. I mean, it's it's you gotta give it the full. Don't you just wait till January? I mean, really, like, can't you just like December's a that's a whole holiday month too. So it's I don't know. I've always found it difficult to to just you know turn it on and off like that. I, I just sort of give up around the beginning of October <laughs> and then just then just try to you know to, to reassess at the beginning of January <laughs> wait for the season of resolutions yeah. I get it yeah um, we're gonna start with uh, the present that the news fairy dropped off this morning which is <laughs> Jack Dorsey resigning as CEO of Twitter um, Parag Agrawal who is the longtime chief technology officer at Twitter uh, was named to move into the corner office. And initially, this was really moving the stock. At one point early this morning, shares of Twitter were up 11%. Now they're basically flat. Um, there are a couple of things I want to get to, but let's, let's start with, look, we're long-term investors, but let's start with the very short-term movement of the stock. Because yeah. one way to read what happened was that Everyone got very excited, and look, this has been um, pushed by uh, some activist investors who were pushing for change, um, not happy with what has happened with Twitter stock over the last few years. And so, initially, you could look at this and say, oh, great, we got the change we wanted. And then, and this is not a knock on uh, Parag Agrawal, um, but... One way to read what happened to the stock or what is happening with the stock is that people got excited for change and then change came in the form of a longtime Twitter executive who basically said, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really sound like change. It just sounds like you're kind of switching chairs out there. Um, I, it, 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 let's begin with the very first uh, point you noted there. I mean, the, the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction, and, and I mean, I, I guess that's sort of been the the trend here over the last uh, couple of days, at least. Um, I, I would I would qualify last week's sell-off as a knee-jerk reaction, and and I think that um, what we saw on Twitter this morning was a knee-jerk reaction, albeit an understandable one. I mean, I think that. Uh, one of one of the criticisms we've had, a lot of people have had with with Twitter over the years, is the fact that that Jack Dorsey is running two companies, right? I mean, running Square and Twitter just seems like a lot. And I, I mean, I, I certainly early on felt like it, it made sense. I felt like he was the one who at least could bring some some mentality of experimentation of trying new things with Twitter. I feel like Twitter really needed him at that point in time to try to right the ship there. And, and I think he's done a lot. I think he's done a lot with with Twitter, uh, the business, so to speak. I mean, to me, the platform is really more or less the same. I mean, I know they continue to introduce little bells and whistles along the way, but meaningfully, they haven't really changed the nature of the platform. But the business itself, I think Dorsey's done a pretty good job of right-sizing it. Um, he, he had a obviously took a big big uh, 
he had a big focus on on stock-based compensation early on bringing that back down towards uh, peer peer levels and, he, and he's, he's done that as well so from a business perspective uh, good job from a platform perspective maybe not quite as good of a job I don't know that that's necessarily his fault because I feel like the nature of the platform I don't know to me and I mean I have always been a, a Twitter user but to me it feels like you know we talk you and I talk a lot about businesses that sort of we feel like there's a ceiling and I feel like Twitter the platform maybe has hit its ceiling I, I, I just I'm not I don't believe it's a platform for the masses I think it serves a unique purpose um, but but I don't think it's a platform for the masses and it's free flowing and fast nature I think it's going to make it difficult to monetize meaningfully over the coming years which is going to be a big problem uh, for for Mr. Agrawal I, I, I honestly I thought Kayvon Beckpour would would have been the guy uh, taking that chair over. He uh, Kayvon is the uh, one of the founders of Periscope. Came onto the the Twitter team when that deal it, uh, was was uh, finalized, and he's he's been the head of consumer product there for a while. But uh, I mean, either way, I think it's good to see someone internal. Um, I, I just I just don't know how much I don't know what else they can really do with it. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. There is an argument to be made that the smoothest transition is to go with someone a longtime executive like this. Um, But to your point, this is going to be um, interesting to see over the next, let's call it six to 12 months. Um, Are there going to be significant changes to the business? Um, You think back to when uh, Satya Nadella took over at Microsoft and within that calendar year, it was obvious that he was going in a different direction than his predecessor, Steve Ballmer, was. And I I think there's an opportunity here um, for the new CEO. There is, and I... I a couple of couple of things there. Number one, I don't know if if you had a chance to read the email that Jack Dorsey sent. I I found it very enlightening. It was it was a very interesting perspective I think he has there in regard to founder-led companies because his his primary point, like one of his biggest points in all of this, um, we, we talk a lot about businesses that are founder-led and how, how much of a how much we value that, right? Founder-led business being such such a high quality um, dynamic there. So, so you always always really take note. And Dorsey sees it a little bit from from a different perspective there in that he, he calls companies that are being founder-led up up to a point that's fine, but ultimately what it can it can ultimately limit where the company can go, and it risks that single point of failure when you tie that company's success to one individual or a collection of individuals in the case of co-founders. And I mean, it's not going to be absolutely right or wrong one way or the other. I certainly see his perspective. I think it's a fair one. While I'm sure some will disagree with it, I mean, there are plenty of examples out there that speak to it, right? I mean, there are founders that just kind of hit their hit their limit. They're not able to take that business to the next level, Um, and, and and sometimes they can leave a little bit too late. I think that in regard to to Twitter, the one thing that Mr. Agrawal is going to have to deal with is is some explicit goals that Dorsey set out earlier in the year, uh, in in regard to where they want to take this business by 2023. I mean, they're talking about a goal of at least 315 million uh, monetizable daily active users. 
they're talking about something like uh, they wanted more than double their revenue, double total revenue to over seven and a half billion dollars by 2023. Those are some very audacious goals. And and I, I'm honestly, I look at that with a little bit of, of skepticism. I don't think they can achieve that. I would be surprised if they did. I hope they do. Um, but but to me, that sounds like a bit of a lofty goal. So I do wonder if they're not going to go back and maybe look at those explicit goals and reassess. But for now. Hey, listen, I mean, Wall Street's going to hold them to it. And if they go in there and they change those goals to the downside, I, I, it'll, be, it'll be noteworthy how, how investors react to that, whether they see that as an admission of uh, taking a more realistic approach or, or if they see it as internal pessimism in regard to the business. That, that we'll have to wait and see. But those, those are some benchmarks to keep an eye on, those user goals and that revenue goal. Uh, because as it stands right now, that's what, that's what, the, uh, that's what the street's expecting. And, and so, leadership is going to have to figure out a way to deliver. Last thing before we move on, you think back to, let's just say January. Who are the CEOs of the big tech companies that occasionally get hauled in front of Congress to answer <laughs> questions? And now we've got Jack Dorsey joining Jeff Bezos in 2021 as saying, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't blame him. It doesn't really look like a very enjoyable experience. And you add to that the fact that it does. I'm getting the vibe that a lot of those people in Congress don't quite know what they're talking about, Chris. I mean, they, I could be off base, but I'm just throwing it out there. Just in time for Cyber Monday, Amazon executive Dave Clark said this morning on CNBC that his company is about to become the largest package delivery service in the United States, passing both UPS and FedEx, if not by the end of this calendar year, then in early 2020. Are you surprised by this? Because nope. as an Amazon shareholder who has watched them build up their delivery service over the past decade, I'm surprised at this. Are you? I don't know when yeah. I thought it was going to happen. I didn't think they were that close. I, I I've started thinking about this more and more lately, just because I, I mean we have we have multiple Amazon packages delivered to my house on a daily basis. I mean for whatever reason, there's always something being dropped off. My dogs can attest to it. Um, and what I've seen more and more, re- re- respectfully, your dogs are not the one um, paying for that. No, no, they're not. But they, so when they you are. say for whatever reason, it's like I'm pretty sure uh, you and your spouse are the reason. They're they're the beneficiaries of some of those packages, but yes, you're right. They're not the ones forking over the bucks. Uh, but we, I I think it 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 strikes me that more and more of these delivery vehicles have that Amazon logo on them. I've just I've noticed that, and I mean it's not to say we don't have FedEx and UPS stopping by as well, but but it, it certainly the ratio has has come far more to parity than it ever has been. So I'm not terribly surprised. I mean, I, I think to me with with Amazon, the biggest risk for Amazon has always been ultimately not living up to what they say they want to be in being the world's most customer centric company. So if they start getting the reputation of not being able to get stuff from point A to point B on the timeline that they promise, consumers will go elsewhere. There are more options out there now. I mean, ten years ago, Amazon was a little bit more of a, of an only game in town sort of sort of a thing. But but that's that's not the case today. You have other options, and so I think they 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 saw that. I think a while back, they you know Bezos has always been very very uh, forward in, in saying how scared he is of of. of 
customers and the competition and customers always waking up the next day and choosing someone else. And so, you have to be able to do everything in your power to keep them. And so, years ago, they had the wherewithal really to invest in this massive network in, in, in logistics and fulfillment. And, and it's starting to pay off, right? I mean, the shipping and logistics market opportunity is just really, really big. And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in play here from a global perspective. Amazon clearly being a global company, uh, this is this is the investments that they've made over the past decade plus in in fulfillment now start to make a lot more sense. And I think I think that's why the market was always willing to give it a little bit of wiggle room because there was some understanding that that they were trying to 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 do this. But I mean ultimately this this is really I think a good thing. I mean they they have so much data not only on on what people are buying but now where it's got to go and they have so many so many facets to this distribution channel whether it's straight to the house amazon lockers pick up and store somewhere else i mean it's just just a number of different ways uh, for them to get those goods out there, uh, and while we always talk about AWS being really, really the profit center of the business, this still, at the end of the day, is an e-commerce business um, uh, on a global scale. So, so to see this happening doesn't surprise me. It probably is a little bit faster than some expected, but uh, it absolutely makes sense. It turns them into a little bit more of a vertical uh, organization with more control uh, over that entire distribution chain, and, and for investors, that could be a very good thing. You go back to about this time eight years ago, 2013, that was maybe disastrous is too strong a word. That was a bad holiday season for Amazon. <laughs> um, that was the year that um, they didn't have nearly the control over uh, the shipping and logistics that they have right now. And they ended up sending a lot of gift cards to people who had bought things for the holidays that did not arrive on time as they were expecting and i don't know you just you you think about everything we know about bezos um, and his focus uh, my hunch is not that that was necessarily a tipping point for amazon but i have to believe that uh, it did inform the decision to make these investments that they've made you know because uh, let's be clear there's been no shortage of people questioning these investments, yep. um, starting early on and then sort of through the decade, where people are like, well, wait a minute, why, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to spend on planes and trucks and the people necessary <laughs> to drive? Why would you do that when you can rely? It's not like FedEx and UPS are startup businesses. <laughs> they're established, they're global leaders, why not just depend on them? And uh, I think the holiday season of 2013 goes on the list of reasons that Amazon has methodically grown this part of their business. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you can sit back there and say, why do that heavy lifting, uh, seemingly low margin work when you could just get someone else to do it for you? And, and that's the reason, right? It puts you at risk of not being able to live up to your promise. And and uh, Bezos and team there have, have uh, they're they're known for leaving no stone unturned. And and I'll tell you, I mean, when you look at you're right, FedEx and EPS between the two of them bring in uh, you know around 180 billion dollars in revenue on an annual basis. Now, Amazon, somewhere in the neighborhood of $450 billion and, and growing, um, but that can just put it into context, those two businesses compared to Amazon's. And I think uh, they probably saw back then, 
that with the promises they wanted to keep with the philosophy that they were taking and being so customer centric that shipping was going to become a a more expensive part of the business as as they as they got bigger and certainly I mean if you look at worldwide shipping costs in the most recent quarter of 18.1 billion dollars that was up 20% from a year ago and on on 110 billion dollars in sales that shipping represented about 16.4% of total revenue now if you go back to 2018 that same quarter Shipping costs were about $6.6 billion on $56.6 billion in sales. So it was only about 11.6% uh, of total revenue. So, so certainly that trend has continued. I think they, I think they, they had that foresight back then that, that, that uh, sort, of, sort of forecasting ability to, to say, you know what, shipping is going to become a bigger part of our business as time goes on. Let's try to figure out how we can benefit from it multiple ways, not only in making sure that our customers are getting their stuff on time, uh, but, but maybe we could be the ones to do it as uh, as long as we're able to continue investing in and building out this network, and you know what, they uh, we all gave them a little bit of wiggle room there to build out that network, and, and here we go. I think uh, this this is another good example of why you, you don't. I, I don't I think for shareholders of Amazon, I just I don't think you want to be selling these shares anytime soon because it just it has a lot of different ways it can win. And uh, even though Jeff Bezos has stepped down from the CEO position, I think uh, Mr. Jassy still has has plenty of, of uh, road ahead, you know, market share to capture. A last thing before we move on, uh, one data point from the media industry, which is that last year, a record number of broadcast radio stations flipped their format to the holiday format. More than 500 stations did that, and they did that because uh, historically it's quite profitable for those radio stations. Um, all of this is just a prelude to something longtime listeners know, which is that Wednesday, December 1st, it's our annual campaign here at Market Foolery uh, to find the alternative holiday music, to celebrate <laughs> you know, songs, the great music, other than those 50 songs that get played all the time. Yep. No disrespect to Mariah Carey. None. Uh, she recorded a classic, and God only knows how much money she's made off the royalties of that <laughs> one song. But uh, we're going to be playing some different stuff starting on Wednesday. I love it. I love it. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.